This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Here are some climate action headlines to start our second show on the implications of the IPCC report and the road to Glasgow. Number one. The $3.5 trillion of President Biden's bills will slash U.S. emissions by half by 2030. Number two, Paris slams on the brakes. A 30-kilometre speed limit to discourage car use and the removal of 144,000 parking spaces and widened street-lined footpaths will encourage French drivers to try public transport or bicycles. This follows a public consultation and will reduce accidents, noise and pollution as well. Number three, reporting of Hurricane Ida in the USA is connecting the dots with climate change at last. This headline is from Louisiana, from Democracy Now! August the 31st. Stop this madness. Reverend Lennox Yearwood calls to divest from fossil fuels amid climate chaos. We know who is who is causing this storm, these storms. We know who is causing the climate crisis. They're right there in Louisiana with us. It's the fossil fuel industry. So we got to stop it. So the reality right now is that from 16 years ago, from Katrina to now, is that we need to move past fossil fuels. That's it. It has to end right now. We have wildfires, droughts, we have hurricanes, we have folks who are displaced, who are hurting because of this. And so the time is right now to stop this madness. It's time to stop this madness and move beyond fossil fuels. No more talk, no more negotiations. It's time to move on. You know, this storm was called Hurricane Ida. And, and, and for Chevron and BP and Exxon, it should be either one that caused all this mess. Yeah, either one, they're the one that caused all this mess. And so we got to move on. The, the fossil fuel industry's business plan means a death sentence for us. It's, that's ridiculous. How, how are we going to keep saying that we depend on them, but we, we in our cars packing up? We ain't got no power. All the power is gone. We, we, we running for our lives. How is what, what, what? That's madness. And so listen. It is time for us to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. There's a number of groups, and, and I, my brother earlier said it quite well, a number of us on the ground who are trying to do all we can do. But it's clear that particularly poor people and particularly black people and indigenous people are left behind to die. A, a, a climate emergency. We need a Green New Deal. We need to get serious. This is ridiculous. I'm, I'm telling you, if you are a Republican or you're a Democrat, I don't care. 
We have a crisis right now. It's not about that. People are suffering. If you are an American and in English, I, I was I was an officer in the United States Air Force. And so I took an oath to fight for this country. And I'm still going to do that. And so what I'm saying to you is that we have a climate crisis. Number four, the UK's primary policy success in addressing climate change has been achieved in the electricity sector with emissions more than halved since 2014 by shutting down coal-fired power stations and investing heavily in renewable energy technologies. Number five. Extinction Rebellion began the impossible rebellion, demanding governments stop all fossil fuel investments immediately. Rebels in business suits and masks held signs saying, Fossil fuel finance is killing the earth. This was outside major English banks. And the financial industry is bleeding the earth dry. In Brisbane, rebels targeted the NAB, National Australia Bank, saying NAB claims to support action on climate change. Yet in the last seven years, it has invested $7.5 billion in fossil fuel projects. And the last headline from this week is from Brazil. Indigenous groups gather in Brazil's capital. 6,000 Indigenous people representing 176 groups have been camping in Brasilia to condemn the destruction of the Amazon rainforest and the genocide of Indigenous peoples. 6,000 people. In tonight's show, we'll go to the Northern Territory to hear why the gas-led recovery is a reckless investment. Bruce Robertson from IEFA and Larissa Baldwin from GetUp are our guests. And then we'll go to the Pacific to hear how the 14 nations there are furious at Australia for our double game pretending to be family while wrecking efforts to slow down climate change at Glasgow. Dr Nic Nicola Chajoulet from G Greenpeace will be our guest. We'll also hear from Dr George Crisp from Doctors for the Environment Australia and Neil Stanley from Lock the Gate Alliance. This show is dedicated to climate refugees everywhere, including drought-affected people in Afghanistan who have flocked to the cities and the people displaced by Hurricane Ida in Louisiana. Our guest now is Bruce Robertson. He's from the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, and his specialty is gas. So welcome, Bruce. What was your first reaction to the IPCC report? I was appalled. Uh, well, look, it's, it's, I suppose, really it was summarised by someone who called it a code red for the planet. Um, and what what we're seeing is it's really quite simple I, I think all this climate change stuff gets bound up in complicated language but if we look at it simplistically um, emissions are rising rapidly and to meet paris commitments they have to fall so we're going in the wrong direction at quite a fast clip and when we look at methane emissions particularly the 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 emissions from the gas industry, they are rising rapidly at the moment. Uh, methane emissions make up 25% of all greenhouse gases. 
the oil and gas industry is a significant contributor to that 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 25 percent and they rose in a COVID affected year 2020 a COVID globally a COVID affected year economically when things were slow economically they rose at the fastest rate since 1982. So methane emissions are a major factor in the acceleration of global greenhouse gas emissions. Well, look, you have your eyes on the gas market, I know. And I want to know why is our federal government and the opposition so keen to pipe out more gas for export? And like, what's the financial advantage for Australia in that? Well, for Australia, there's really not, not, not a lot in it. Um, if we have a look, say, for example, recently, if we take a large operator in Australia like Shell, they released their annual accounts recently. In it, they disclosed that from two of their major LNG projects, the Prelude project and the Gorgon project, they would be paying no PRRT, which is no royalties at all for the life of the projects. So we're effectively giving away our gas to Shell from Prelude and, and from Gorgon and um, the Gorgon projects off the Northwest Shelf. Now, the Prelude project, if we just take focus in on that particularly large project, the Pre Shell's Prelude project, um, it, it is actually an offshore LNG project. So there are no jobs in construction. All the jobs in construction were actually in Korea, in the shipyard in Korea. So for Australia, there's no jobs in, in construction. There's a few jobs for some specialised workers who work on, on, on the floating LNG um, platform out there. Uh, and that's about it. That really is about it. Um, and so there's no tax in Shell. Shell don't pay any tax in Australia. And they don't pay any royalties on Prelude. So effectively what Australia is doing is it's giving away its gas for free. But I've heard this We're before. the only country in the world that I know that actually does this. But I just can't believe it. I mean, just yesterday or about three days ago, the ALP voted with the government to put more money into this pipeline from Tennant Creek to Darwin to pipe out gas. I can't understand this. Uh, yeah, well, this is your taxpayer dollars. Um, don't, don't forget, this is your taxpayer dollars that are going to subsidise this industry, um, an industry that both onshore and offshore pays precious few royalties and, and virtually no income tax for, from any of the players involved. It's a very low level of income tax, um, uh, far lower than you or I pay every year um, as, as ordinary tax paying citizens. Uh, so I am um, uh, in a percentage terms. Um, I, I, I think that um, the gas industry has tremendous, tremendous sway over our political class, both Labor and Liberal governments are wholly beholden and owned by the gas industry in Australia. Well, look, we're going to Glasgow at the end of this year, and I'm hoping there'll be some international pressure on us. But I noticed that um, Woodside, which is a major exporter of LNG, said in the financial review, this is how they're painting themselves. They say, we are reducing our emissions, but our gas is helping Asia 
to decarbonize. And I think they're repositioning themselves. They used to be transition gas, but now they're transitioning themselves. I've heard this wording, compromise gas. What, what's going to happen? You know, they're very cunning. And as you say, they can capture a government. So what's going to happen at Glasgow in terms of international pressure to stop this? Well, let, let's just first of all uh, break down what you're saying. Um, the, the first point is is that gas is the light cigarettes, of, like light cigarettes were to the tobacco industry. They will still fry the planet, just maybe a little bit slower than coal, possibly a little bit slower than coal, uh, if you believe some scientists. If you look at other scientists, you only need a very small leakage rate. And if you look at the industry themselves, BP itself has said that the broader industry has fugitive emissions, that's leakages of methane, of, of over 3%. Now, um, above 3% gas is worse for the climate than coal. So BP itself says that not its operations, but the broader industry leaks at, at, at a rate that makes it worse for the climate than coal. Even if it is marginally better than coal, it's the light cigarettes of, 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 the, um, of the fossil fuel industry. It, it, it's still going to fry the planet. So in terms of Glasgow, um, expanding gas is essentially off the agenda if we want to meet our net zero um, uh, commitments by 2050. The International Energy Agency, an agency that for, for many years has been captured by the fossil fuel industry, it says that under net zero by 2050 emission scenarios, there can be no new gas, no new LNG infrastructure, no new pipelines built if we're going to meet net zero by 2050. That's the International Energy Agency says that. The UN Environment Program says very similar things. So we have all these international agencies telling us that we can't expand the gas industry and meet net zero by 2050. The two are incompatible. It's that simple. It is that simple. It's like someone who's dying of lung cancer telling them to, well, start smoking light cigarettes and you'll be right, mate. Well, you won't. You won't be right. And this is where we're at. We're at, we're at the stage where we have to realise we have to get off the gas. We have to wean ourselves off the gas like an addicted smoker. Well, you, you um, said to me before that it's, it's, there's a financial argument against this too, and I've often heard people say, look, there'll be stranded assets, you know, renewable energy will take over, but I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I, I'm sort of feeling the urgency of the listeners who are climate activists, a lot of them. A lot of them are locking themselves onto things in Canberra, writing up duty of care on the walls of Canberra. You know, desperate to stop the Beetaloo gas, you know, ruining that. I mean, the IPCC report focused on that area where the Beetaloo Basin is, you know, Catherine, they said temperatures there over 40 degrees will multiply by, you know, about 30 days a year very soon. And I thought, oh, that's exactly where the gas is coming from. So, you know, people who don't know the financial world like you, what can you tell us 
from an insider's point of view, from a banking point of view, what's going to happen to this business model? Well, look, already we're seeing it, it unwind. Um, we are seeing it unwind. So um, if we have a look at the largest importer of LNG in the world, it's Japan. Japan actually fostered the industry and got it going way, way back in the early days as, as, as a means of diversifying their, their, their energy supply. Um, and they're a large. They're the world's largest importer of, of LNG still today, bigger than China. Japan is the world's largest importer of LNG. If you look at its power plan to 2030, we're not talking a long time. Remember, now we're in August 2021. We're, we're you know fast approaching the end of 2021. So we're only talking eight and a quarter years away. Uh, what we're looking at in, in, in Japan, in eight and a quarter years, they are going to reduce their LNG in the power system by 51%. And overall, that means a reduction in imports of about a third. They'll reduce their imports by a third by 2030 in the world's biggest market for LNG. So a lot of that LNG will have to find another home because a lot of it's already been contracted. They signed long-term contracts. So they will be re-exporting Australian LNG. And of course, one of the places they will be looking to re-export Australian LNG to will be Australia. Um, obviously, it will be Australia because we believe that sending LNG up to Japan and then bringing it back to Australia is uh, economically and environmentally sens sensible thing to do. That's what our government <laughs> believes, is an economically and environmentally sensitive thing to do. If yeah. we look at the economics, it's patently absurd because yeah. you're going through the expensive liquefaction pro process, then you're putting it on an expensive specialised ship. You're shipping it and using fuel to get it to Japan. You're shipping it and using fuel to get it back. You're then regasifying it an expensive regasification facility that they're looking at building at, at, um, in Wollongong and also one down in Geelong and one in South Australia and one in Newcastle. Um, essentially, they're looking at turning Australia into an import-only supplied market, which is uh, an indication of the total policy failure of, of our government, that we can't even provide its citizens with its own resources. It, it, it's a total policy failure yeah. of the current and previous governments that this well, should happen. Um, but if we look environmentally, if we look environmentally, we should look at that too, because when you liquefy gas, you burn 9% of the gas. To ship the gas is a further 2 to 6% of the gas. 13% of the gas is used just in getting it up to Japan, let alone bringing it back and then regasifying it, which involves further losses. So this environmentally, um, what we're looking at in Australia is, is, is nothing less than an environmental crime to be importing gas into the world's largest LNG exporter. Do you think that financial forces will make us see sense? Uh, well, they are mobilising, um, probably too slowly, yeah. but they are mobilising. We are seeing um, uh, the environmental and social governance policies of virtually all institutions are tightening up and, and increasingly 
Uh, it used to be coal that they were withdrawing from and withdrawing support, banks and superannuation funds. And now their focus is firmly on the oil and gas industry as well as coal. So I believe that over time they will be forced and um, your uh, listeners can force them to. They can force them to by changing super funds, by changing banks, by when they leave their super fund or leave their bank, writing to them and explaining why they're doing it. Um, and this is, this is what we have to do. We have to actually use our own agency to try and use what, you know, small amount of funds that we have mm. to, to, to change behaviours. But, 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 but it is working. It is working. Um, and we are seeing these policies being tightened up by banks. Um, you can agitate from within when you can't change your super fund because you're an employer with your employer. You can actually write to your super fund and demand that they change and demand that they don't destroy your children's futures by investing in oil, gas and coal. Yeah. So um, we should all be doing this. We should be putting pressure on our super funds, demanding, not asking, demanding that they act, demanding that they don't waste your money because they are losing industries these these if we have a look at the share prices of all the major oil and gas companies in australia your santos's your origins your woodsides they've been terrible investments terrible investments over the last 10 years they've lost money on average for for shareholders while the rest of the market's gone up a long way so it's a financially sensible decision you can argue with your super fund that they should be withdrawing for financial reasons, not just environmental reasons. They shouldn't be investing in dying, contracting any, you know, industries such as these. And that's what they are. They're dying, contracting industries. Oh, well, that's a relief to hear that. Thank you so much for telling us. I hope the listeners can benefit from this advice. We don't usually give financial advice on the 3CR, but thank you for that. So we've been talking to Bruce Robertson, who's a gas expert. It's a very specialised field. What will you do, Bruce, when you're out of business with gas? When the gas industry... Uh, I've got a farm I live on and I'll be very happy to go back to tending my cows, I can tell you, and my um, vegetables and various other things. I'll be very happy to do more of that and less of this. Fantastic. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bruce. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Larissa Baldwin is GetUp's First Nation Justice Lead. She spoke to a GetUp meeting about the IPCC report, how it will play out in Central Australia, 
how it will play out in the Beetaloo Basin, which will experience over 30 more over 40 degrees heatwave days in the next decade. Later, we'll hear from Dr. George Crisp, who says heatwave days like that will be unmanageable for the old, for the young, and for those with other conditions like diabetes. Just imagine if you have diabetes and the electricity goes or you run out of money to pay for it and the air conditioner stops and the insulin in your fridge is getting warmer. The really only free number to call is triple O and the emergency department is the only safe place to be. This is going to put an enormous toll on people and it must be prevented if the Beetaloo gas can be prevented from ever leaving the ground. So, um, yeah, you've, we've heard about the science from Professor Stefan and Larissa is now going to talk about the, the front lines and what, what fracking means in, in communities on the ground and tell you about the campaign to hold back this huge expansion of fossil fuel. Um, so over to you, Larissa. My name is Larissa. I have been working in the climate movement for a very long time. I think that, you know, I, I hear those presentations by people like Will and it just, like, makes me fired up, like, you know, 1.5, we have to fight like hell for 1.5. It is not an option. I have a long history in my family working in the land rights movement uh, and, you know, we don't call ourselves activists, but everything that we have within our community was set up by my elders and stuff like that. So for me, seeing those temperature variances and looking at those maps and being like, if we do nothing about this, Climate change is going to mean the forced removal of country for so many First Nations people. We know that 60% of mining in this country happens next to or in close proximity to Aboriginal communities. So, you know, while you might be living on the East Coast and, and having the benefits of all this mining, it is actually people on the ground in Aboriginal communities who are dealing with the, like, frontline extraction. But also we need to reshape the conversation around what informed consent really means and what it's going to mean for our climate as well. Um and, you know, I get, I get the short of it is that when you have a conversation with Aboriginal people about what climate change actually is going to mean, it's one of the things that when you put that on the table, uh, people are like, well, actually, we can't be doing this anymore. And like, but the way that we campaign now is to actually build relationships with communities. Uh, it's a big, what we call organising, um, but actually... Our strategy isn't just around stopping this fossil fuel project or working on this election because we need to know we need to have some really transformative change in order to deal with the impacts of climate change that we've already locked in, but also looking at how we stop these fossil fuels. Like if the Beetaloo Basin is fracked, if just one gas field in the Beetaloo Basin goes ahead, we just said goodbye to any chance at 1.5. That's how important that frontline fight is in the Beetaloo Basin. And we know that in the Beedaloo Basin, doesn't matter what the government's saying, it doesn't make any sense. The, me the methane in the gas that is coming out of the Beedaloo Basin is the most expensive gas in the world. The reason they want to frack it is because of the oil that's here. And we know that we need to stop burning all fossil fuels. So it doesn't matter, um, you know, how much they're willing to line the pockets of their mates. We need to make sure that, that these projects don't go ahead. And, you know, using coronavirus as a cover for gas-fired recovery, saying we need this thing, um, even though, you know, economists, communities have come out for decades fighting against these projects, they don't want their water risk by, they don't want their health risk. They've seen the disaster that's happened in, you know, in Texas and Wyoming and Pennsylvania. Fracking has been a complete disaster. Shale gas fracking, which is what they want to do in the um, 
in the Northern Territory is actually banned in a lot of states and territories in Australia and around the world. But I think people need to understand how actually land rights is a solution to the climate crisis. Um, we, when people hear about land back, they think that like there's a physical like you know we're going to send you send you back to wherever you came from, going to take our land back. But land back is is and land rights is a bigger conversation around autonomy. It's about making decisions. It's about putting our laws into Western laws. So our land rights and our ability to make decisions over land. That's one of the reasons why we are campaigning so hard to change the legislation around cultural heritage protection. Because at the moment, you see in New South Wales, in the last 10 years, over 700 applications have been made by traditional owner groups to stop industry and infrastructure. An incredible moment at the right now where we're really reckoning with what land rights actually means in this country. And, and that's why we need to look at, you know, not just we can't just have the government coming out and saying well if you disagree with this mining project then you're saying to aboriginal people that they shouldn't have housing and health services and it's like no we're not saying that we're saying you should give that to aboriginal people anyway and you should also not hold them to ransom over their um sacred country around it being destroyed in order for to promise you know that some mining company is going to somewhere down the track materialize and, and and pay for our health services we shouldn't have to do this as first peoples in this country and so understanding how our fights are connected and really understanding that, you know, the climate movement is incredibly large in this country, like, uh, you know, the union movement is really huge, but land rights and the land rights movement is separate and we're different and we need to build solidarity between the two of them. So I'm going to hand over to you, Taryn, to talk about what next for the campaign and shifting the politics on this issue. Um, thank you so much for the introduction, Catherine. And Thank you so much to everyone for taking the time to dial in tonight. The latest date that the federal election can be is um, the 21st of May next year. And so during this period of time, we're seeing like a lot of mounting pressure on the Morrison government to, to increase their climate action, um, particularly given that not long ago, Australia's climate action was was ranked worst in the, in the entire world. Um, we're still also the largest coal exporter in the world. Um, so there's a lot of like international pressure. Our job collectively is to try and ramp up the pressure here at home. Um, so if we work together with those um, 35,000 people who signed the open letter and the 55 alliance organisations that we're working with, um, we can mobilise at scale in massive numbers and use every single leverage point that's available to us. So the things that we're asking for is a fair and just national plan to cut to slash coal and gas pollution this decade. We need to end public funding for coal and gas. We need to not frack the NT. We need 100% clean energy by 2030 and we need to clean up transport. That's both, both private and public transport. We really have our work cut out over the next year. Um, but we should also know that we don't carry the burden alone, that, you know, we're all part of this movement and we can all fill a niche that is unique. So I remember when I read my first IPCC report, I was pregnant with my first son. He is now six foot five and he wants to be a basketballer. So I have been a climate activist that whole time and I am not tired. I am more energised than ever. And to work with you, with all of the creativity and curiosity and collaborative work and compassion that we can muster. Thank you for your determination. Thank you for your presence. And together we will campaign on. Good night. COVID has taught us what overwhelmed hospitals look like. And we're highly aware now, aren't we, that we mustn't stress the system. 
you know, you can tip over so easily and stress everybody. But in Louisiana right now, then they have the hospitals are overwhelmed with COVID cases and now they've had Hurricane Ida. The hospitals must be bursting at the seams. So here's Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! to give us a little bit of information about Hurricane Ida. And I'd like to pay tribute to the people of New Orleans who must feel that they are absolutely damned when Hurricane Ida hits the same day, 16 years later, as Hurricane Katrina. And I have David Rovick's song, New Orleans, here to pay them tribute. Hurricane Ida, one of the most powerful storms ever to hit the United States, roared ashore Sunday in southern Louisiana, in an area dominated by the oil industry that's also home to many Native communities. The storm brought a seven-foot storm surge, 150-mile-per-hour winds, and up to two feet of rain to parts of the Gulf Coast. It was so powerful, it completely knocked out power to a million people, including the entire city of New Orleans, and reversed the flow of the Mississippi River. The Category 4 storm hit on the same day Hurricane Katrina devastated the area 16 years ago. It's been blamed for at least one death, and one and more are expected. A system of dikes and levees that protects the New Orleans region from rising waters is reportedly holding for now, much of it built since Katrina. Everybody knew that it could happen. The likelihood was clear, the future was coming. And now it's here. They had to fix the levees, cause otherwise they'd break. On one side was the city, above it was the lake. It was in the daily papers, in bold letters was the writ. What would happen when the big one hit? But every year they cut the funding, just a little more, so they could give it to the army to fight their oil war. National Geographic and the Times picking in. They forecast the apocalypse, said it was coming soon. Preparations must be made, they said. Now is the time. It was years ago, they shouted. Inaction was a crime. They said the dikes must be improved and the wetlands must be seen. But Washington decided instead they should be paid. Cause laws were more important than people's lives. So put some gold dust in your eyes and hope no storm arrives. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. Years and years of warning, no evacuation plan. It was just that the waters rose. Get out if you can. There were no buses. No one chartered any trains. There was no plan to rescue all of those who would remain. All the people with no money, all the people with no wheels, all of those who couldn't hotwire, one that they could steal. Thousands and thousands of people abandoned by the state, abandoned by their country, just left to meet their fate. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans.
army of the destitute who couldn't get away. And the world will remember those sad and awful days when people shouted from their houses, dying on their roofs. When people came to find them, they were turned back by the troops. They died there with no water. They died there in the heat. They were shot down by the soldiers for trying to find some food. Richest country on the earth, where the color of your skin determines what your life is worth. Where oil is the king, where global warming is ignored. Where the very end of life is the place we're heading towards. Where it's more than just a metaphor, the flooding of the dike. And if we don't stop this madness, the whole world will be like New Orleans. PCC is our guide, we've looked at Central Australia. First Nations people there do not want gas piped out of their country causing local illness, tainted water and turbocharging global heating. Meanwhile, parallel to where that pipeline would go from Tennant Creek to Darwin, which we hope never exports any gas from there, Parallel to that, there's the Sun Cable Project. It's a Singapore company who wants to have a solar farm in Central Australia, which will send energy from Tennant Creek to Darwin above ground and then undersea in a cable to Singapore, exporting gigatons of energy. Here's a tiny bit from Darwin Radio about that Sun Cable Project. Sun Cable, all going to plan this company wants to start construction in early 2024, supply the first power to Darwin in 2026, and then get it to Singapore the following year in 2027. And now we look at how the Pacific is organising against the existential threat our exported coal and gas posed to their future. Nicola Chachoulet is the Head of Research and Investigations at Greenpeace Australia Pacific. Look, when you read the IPCC report for 2021, it alerted the world that climate tipping points are landing quicker than we'd expected and it's really code red. You said it was like arriving at the Olympics and finding that your government had been sabotaging you. What did you mean? Well, uh, the report itself... Um from the UN really laid out in the starkest terms so far just how serious uh, the climate crisis was. Um, And what that means is that countries around the world, and in particular developed countries like Australia, have to do everything in their power to tackle that crisis. Um, What I meant by that specific comment uh, was that our government has been telling us for years that, you know, we're supposedly meeting and beating our climate targets and, you know, doing really well when it comes to emissions reduction. But as the UN laid out so clearly, that is completely false. 
Uh, Australia is one of the worst performing countries in the developed world when it comes to climate change and the impacts um, in Australia are going to be felt, well, in Australia and the Pacific are going to be felt more than many other parts of the world. So that report showed that um, the world had warmed uh, about 1.1 degrees over the last 100 years. But in Australia, the land temperature had warmed by 1.4 degrees. So we're well ahead of that curve, actually, because of our geography. Um, so really, instead of helping Australia to lead the way and, and protect our people, uh, our government has held back action on climate change that would do that. But imagining on that idea of the athletes, say we go to the Glasgow meeting, it's only 10 weeks away. Um, mm. How are our negotiators really sabotaged by our policy, which increasingly is is a, a, not a loner, but, you know, it's in a sort of a separate category of world world governments? There's two elements to that. One is what Australia's climate negotiators are trying to do, and the other one is what they should be doing. And so it's been clear for, for some time that our current government, um, not to kind of put too blunt a point on it, but that our government is really uh, doing the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. And, and we see that in, in a number of different ways from the record number of new uh, coal and gas mining licenses that are being granted to um, government. Just last week, uh, government flagged billions of dollars of support to keep coal burning power stations open when they should be being closed and, and, you know, there's no reason not to close them. So there's that element, but then there's also the behind the scenes work. And we've, as we saw in the last uh, COP, the last conference of the parties for the, the UN climate agreement, our negotiators work behind the scenes to try and water down and, and hold back action in those regular meetings. So the Paris Agreement on Climate Change has a ratchet mechanism. Every five years, all signatory countries, which Australia is one of them, of course, have to increase our ambitions. And over the last five years, Australia was one of the few countries in the world that did not increase its ambition when it comes to emissions reduction. So it, we're doing exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. You, you have recently made a report with Pacific climate warrior Genevieve Jeeva, and it's called Te Mana o Te Moana, meaning spirit of the sea. Now, what are your contacts in the Pacific telling you about Australia's contribution to their hurricanes, their marine degradation, and their on-land water salinity? Well, Australia's contribution is significant. Uh, we are one of the world's biggest emitters, uh, and we're also one of the countries that are most engaged in the Pacific region. Uh, so our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, likes to talk about us as being part of one Pacific family and you know, Australia sort of helping its Pacific neighbours. But the anger in Pacific Island countries, look, I don't want to speak for them, but based on you know the conversations that I've had with Pacific campaigners and, and leaders, I mean, the anger is palpable because the Pacific Island countries and their communities are on the front line of climate change. All of those impacts, including you know, more intense cyclones, rising sea levels, and, and the many other impacts that we know about, they're being hit by those harder than anywhere else in the world. And what's more, we know that they are the least responsible for the climate crisis. So you mentioned the report that, that we uh, published um, a few weeks ago. Um, as part of that, you know, we looked at what the total global burden of emissions is. And one of our findings was that the highest 15 emitting nations in the world, of which Australia is one, produce 72% of global emissions, while Pacific Island countries, the 14 Pacific Island countries that are part of the Paris Agreement, produce just 0.23%. 
which is obviously a staggering injustice when you really when you, you understand that they are the ones that are being most affected and, and you know least able to deal with the crisis and, and kind of compensate their people as a result there's a, a real injustice at the heart of climate politics and climate justice yeah and there's injustice too for nature which is invisible mm. to us you know as having rights. But I spoke to a marine scientist a few weeks back in Canada and they'd had all this incredible shellfish, they said a billion, you know, animals, uh, sea animals washed up on Vancouver beaches, dead, you know, cooked by the marine heat wave that they'd had. You know, it should be a game changer because it's now becoming visible. What was invisible, a marine heat wave, none of us know about that, but then it is washed up on the beaches. And I think the Pacific with these increased hurricanes, we've got Hurricane Ida in the United States mm. at the moment in the Gulf, but the Pacific are very vulnerable to hurricanes and now they're getting these Category 4 and Category 5 hurricanes all turbocharged by hot waters from climate warming. So I sympathise with them. They're, you know, they're, they're tiny countries spread out on this huge Pacific Ocean, but each of them is vis, you know, visceral for them, I imagine. Yes, that, that's exactly right. Um, what we need to understand is that the globe, the planet, is really a, one sort of complex system. It's very complex, but it is one system, and the energy within that system is changing. So global warming is causing more heat to be trapped within the Earth's atmosphere and, and its oceans and, and land masses. But what a lot of people don't know is that the vast majority of that heat has been taken up by the oceans. Um, and a lot of the carbon dioxide has been absorbed by the oceans as well. So that's less visible to us because obviously we live on the land, not in the ocean, but no less devastating for the planet, you know, most of which is in fact covered by oceans. So that warming, that heat is, is driving directly uh, these more intense cyclones and the other extreme weather events that we have. And of course, we see that in Australia as well. I mean, the Great Barrier Reef uh, we've, has had about half of its coral cover die since the late 90s. We've had you know, an extreme uh, coral bleaching event just uh, you know, four years ago um, now, which uh, really uh, was devastating in particular for the northern parts of the reef. So it's all over the world um, and we're seeing it becoming more intense. And, and this is really what the UN Climate Report showed, that these trends will continue until the world takes serious action on climate change. And the first thing to do there is to phase out burning fossil fuels for electricity and for other energy. Yeah, even the IEA said that there are 14 Pacific countries. This is now the last question. And for campaigners, a lot of our listeners are campaigning all the time on many levels of climate action. I think at the United Nations meeting in Glasgow, those 14 Pacific nations are probably going to act as a block. But meanwhile, Australia, it seems to me, will be sort of in another block with those people, as you said, maybe working behind the scenes but determined to export more coal, oil and gas. Meanwhile, President Biden is moving in the right direction, cautiously, and the EU and China are talking about um, carbon tariffs. What will pressure Australia to move to clean exports instead of fueling more hurricanes in the Pacific? Well, there's, that's a, you know, a, a big question to end on. Um, there's, there's a number of different elements. The, the, it's really about um, the the... Really, it's a question of power, actually. Yeah. We know that the technology is there for a clean energy transition. There's no barriers to that. So this is really a political problem and a question of power. And at the moment, the fossil fuel industry in Australia has more power than climate advocates do, at least with regard to the Morrison federal government. At the state level, things are looking a lot more positive. 
And so either domestically there needs to be more effective campaigns to shift the government, but there is also an international component here. As you point out, there is much more global action now than there was even a year ago. What's happening in the US is really remarkable. The Biden administration, while there's still a long way to go, has moved very strongly and is about to pass a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill, has climate action all through it. And those climate, those are carbon tariffs, namely that you know, countries that are not pulling their weight will make, it'll be harder for them to export their goods uh, because there'll be a tariff put on them by countries that are doing their part. That I think is a very effective mechanism to influence Australia because it will make, it will have an economic hit, which I think can't be ignored. There's also other forms of international action. So something that people will be hearing a lot more about in coming months is the International Court of Justice advisory opinion on climate change. And so, um, the UN and uh, UN uh, advisory bodies and, and the General Assembly has the ability to ask the International Court of Justice, which is the kind of most uh, senior global uh, court, I suppose, to give what's called an advisory opinion, which is um, their view on a particular question. And in this case, there's a real campaign gathering steam amongst member nations of the UN to uh, have an advisory opinion published about climate change. And so that will um, codify a lot of those positions around the world and will put increased pressure on all UN member states to take more action. Um, Those are just two elements, but really uh, the the question is um, mobilizing people and any interested parties as effectively as possible to pressure, um, in in the case of Australia, the Australian federal government, uh, and outweigh the influence of the, the fossil fuel industry towards more climate action. Super. Thank you very much, Nicola. That is really, I think that's new. I haven't heard that last bit about the court and it's it's coming in on all fronts. So thank you very much. And I think you've given heart to some of our listeners who, who really wonder, you know, where this is leading. So we've just been talking no to problem. Green. <laughs> Thanks. Greenpeace. Head of Research and Investigations for Greenpeace Australia Pacific. His name is Dr. Nicola Chajoule. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you. People are listening in America to you, so talk back Australia to the earth. Peace with earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community radio is your love. The Climate Action Network Australia underpins all our efforts, and they invited Dr. George Crisp from Doctors for the Environment to a brown bag lunch. He describes the impacts of what the IPCC reports show. Worse heat waves, longer fire seasons, more intense storms and floods, and hospitals and emergency services knocked out of action. Dr. Crisp does not speak in a dramatic way, but I liked his quiet manner. His words are based on many studies. If you are writing to the editor or ringing your MP, you might quote Doctors for the Environment. This is just a taste, and the full talk is linked to our podcast summary. Dr. Crisp from Doctors for the Environment Australia. Heat waves. And we know that mental health presentations also escalate in the background of heat waves. Um, in the Adelaide studies, showing that about a 7.3% increase in all mental health presentations occurring during heat waves. And not everyone is equally vulnerable. This is not distributed evenly across the population. You know that some groups are especially vulnerable and particularly elderly. Also people that work outdoors um, or are more exposed and and children, people with existing um, health conditions. So we know that in the elderly, uh, they bear the brunt of of heat-related deaths. 
this is uh, published from the Lancet Countdown last year, that over the last um, two decades, heat-related deaths in over 65s globally has increased by over 50%, uh, reaching a peak of, of 296,000 deaths per year in 2018. So really dramatic changes in, in that regard. If you look at projections of heat-related deaths in Australia, this was from the Australian State of the Environment report in 2016. You can see that there's about a quadrupling in, in many Australian cities of, of expected deaths from heat from the beginning of the century to about 2080. Floods. We know that, that uh, when floods occur, there are increased risk of drowning, of electrocution, of injury, and hypothermia. We also know that there are a variety of other health impacts. For example, you know, mosquitoes may breed more. Um, infections occur more frequently. So in the Queensland events, for example, we saw more cellulitis or soft tissue infections and more um, food and waterborne infections too. And exposure to allergens, particularly things like molds. And of course, floods disrupt essential services like power, water, healthcare, and have um, a very big effect in terms of mental health. So we know that uh, in the Queensland flooding event, for example, 2011, the costs of that were assessed in 2015 to be around $14 billion to the economy, of which $5.9 billion um, is attributable to mental health impacts in the short and long term. We know that these affect people you know, um, in terms of anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the effects are lasting. You know, they can be seen a decade after the events occur. Storms. The storms are similar in terms of having both direct effects and causing disruption of infrastructure services. If you look at the uh, cyclones that have occurred here and hurricanes that have occurred um, in other parts of the world, again, there have been numerous studies looking at long-term mental health effects, and they are um, uh, increased in those populations exposed, and particularly in, in young people. We know that children are more vulnerable to to mental health effects from exposure to extreme weather. Fires. Bushfires are occurring more frequently. We know that the uh, severity, again, like other extreme events, they're occurring more frequently, longer duration, and of course the season of bushfires is getting longer. So exposure of, of human populations is getting greater. And as well as direct effects, they also have a range of, of, of consequences in terms of disruption of health services or affecting water quality and air quality. You know, in Canberra, for example, had to build water filtration units after bushfires there to, to purify water because of contaminants. And in the uh, 2019 um, bushfires in the eastern states, air quality was affected significantly over for, for five or six weeks, um, with um, st studies estimating that 417 people died as a consequence of the air, the air pollution that occurred related to those bushfires, with about 3,000 um, hospital admissions occurring. Risks to essential services. You know, climate change threatens to undo these advances that we've made in our health. You know, if you think about how did we get here, how did our health improve to the, you know, the, the, the levels we now see? Life expectancy is one metric that we can use for sort of measuring or, or representing health improvement. You know, that life expectancies around the world have pretty much doubled since the Industrial Revolution. And the, that's happened not because of healthcare, which probably accounts for about 10% of that improvement, because, but because we have improved the conditions which were causing in ill health, those social and environmental de determinants. So improving access to clean water, to adequate nutrition, 
to um, safe occupations and housing and all of these factors are are really underlying, you know, our health. And of course, they are all at risk um, with changes that occur through through climate change. You've been listening to the Climate Action Show. Our guests tonight were Bruce Robertson, an economist with IEFA, talking about gas. Larissa Baldwin, GetUp's climate justice lead, speaking on Northern Territory gas. Amy Goodman and David Rovix taking our sympathy to New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Ida. Dr Nicola Chajouli from Greenpeace and Dr George Crisp from Doctors for the Environment. For action, please go to 3CR Climate Action Show. There's too much happening and it's clearer there if you want details of actions that you can take. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. We'll go out with singer Rachel Collis and wait till the end. She has a special offer for you.
everyone. Now let's just be straight up front about this. As an independent artist, I rely absolutely 100% financially on the support of my fans. Join Friends of Rachel before September 10. Cool.